Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Welcome back to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. We took a little break last week, so thank you for staying with us. I want to prepare listeners that in this particular episode, there will be stories pertaining to infant loss and intimate partner violence. I know for some of us, those topics hit close to home. So if that is the case, feel free to skip this episode and we will see you next time. For the rest of you, welcome. This next episode is with someone who is near and dear to my heart, and I hope you enjoy it. It is important to me to highlight stories of people who have touched my life personally on this show, as well as talk to the experts in the field of faith and sexuality. Today, my guest is one who is important to me on many levels. This person has been my pastor for a very long time. If my memory serves me since I was in elementary school. And I still claim him as my pastor, even though he has long since retired. Kirk Havel is who I am speaking with today. This man has been a guide in my life in a way many haven't. I want to say he was a strong pillar who most times stood by me in a way that was quiet, but his presence was loud. I knew he had my back if I ever needed someone to catch me. He offered me advice teased me when I did things like get my name in the paper for a not-so-great choice that I made, gave me caring and loving looks when he knew I wasn't doing well emotionally, answered my never-ending questions around religion, pushed me in areas he saw me as a leader even though I thought he was absolutely crazy, and still today checks in on how I am doing and will comment on the work I produce. He married me, and he baptized my firstborn. He is a man of great faith and humility, who learns and lives out the gospel even when he is criticized for it. So it is my honor to be spending time with Pastor Kirk Havel. Welcome, Pastor Kirk Havel. (laughs) How are you? Hi, (laughs) Kara. Did you find it strange that I asked you to be on this podcast? I did a little bit, frankly. It surprised me. being an old guy, podcasts have not been my thing. I know they are for many people. Mm-hmm. So to be asked, especially by you, is uh, an interesting honor. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said yes. And part of it is I have said to people, I've been selfishly wanting to interview people, obviously, who has touched my life, and you were one of those people. So thank you. I remember uh, little Kara coming out of church and older Kara dancing down the aisles. So this, <laughs> this brings back a lot of memories. When did you start at Trinity? I 1989. That's right. So I was nine when you okay when you came because I was trying to remember. So a long time. You've known me yep. for a long time. That's awesome. So. I'm curious because you've been doing this ministry gig for a long time. What was the most impactful moment for you in your ministry and why? Actually, I thought of two. Mm -hmm. The first one was very early in my first call. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. December 17th, 1973. Oh, you remember the date. Well, I looked it up because I wanted to put it into context of things. But they, there was a young woman in the congregation who was 22 years old, and she was the treasurer of the congregation. Mm-hmm. And I had kidded around with her on Sunday, like I used to do with you on Sunday mornings. Yeah. <laughs> and she was very pregnant. And Monday morning, I got a call that she had gone to the hospital to have her baby. From, I got the call from her aunt. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, great. And her aunt said, no, not so great. You better get over there. Mm-hmm. Over there meant Sandusky, Ohio, from where we were. Mm-hmm. And I got there and I was allowed to go into the uh, maternity ward where all this uh, activity was happening. And she was hemorrhaging severely. Oh, no. And there had been no pre-warning. She was full term. And uh, the doctor said, you've got to get out now. So I went out and waited in the waiting room with the aunt. And pretty soon the doctor came out and took his skull cap off and just threw it on the ground. And then I knew this was not going to be good. And um, then her mother came out and said, Janet didn't make it. And the baby is still alive, but not expected to live. Oh, my gosh. So I remember going home and sitting on the edge of the bed and breaking down in tears and saying to Sandy, I was right there and I could do nothing. Hmm. So th- I learned that there are going to be a lot of ministry occasions where I literally can do nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, not sure that I had the opinion that I could do anything or everything before that. Mm-hmm. But that moment brought it home that um, life is real and tragic things happen to people. And yeah. pastors get thrust into the middle of those situations and oftentimes find themselves just as helpless as the, the families. Mm-hmm. So we had the funeral for Janet and her baby. He, he died uh, four hours later. We had the funeral. And this was on December 20th, right before Christmas. Oh, that's heartbreaking. And right before I, I had gotten the call to my next congregation in Holland, Ohio, and I did not have the heart to tell the congregation you know, at that point, because of the, it was one of those small rural congregations where probably um, two thirds of the people were related to each other. So this was a, an upheaval, a congregational event that was just very tragic. So I waited until after Christmas to announce that I'd gotten this call and that indeed I was going to be going. But that that occasion, every December, I think about it, actually. Um, wow. So that kind of shaped and defined a moment for me that uh, I've never forgotten, and which I think has impacted the way I look at those kind of situations with other people. And there have been many over the years. Hmm. How old were you when that happened? Well, that was 73. So I would have just been 29. Wow. I can imagine then that just, did that just kind of change your entire, I mean, you talked about how you recognize bad things were happening, but did that change to the way that you would approach those circumstances or ministry in general? Yeah. And I think it was a dose of humility when I had, when I said, I hear myself saying, I couldn't do anything, you know, like I thought I could have done something. Mm-hmm. No, you couldn't. Mm-hmm. Life, life is tough. And uh, so I just have never forgotten it. And, but I think that that did help me, you know, the rest of the 52 years to 
understand that I can't do everything or anything about some things other than be with and walk with the people who are experiencing life's realities. Yeah. The second event was in uh, January 25th, 1989, right before I went to Trinity, or I had my heart attack, my first heart attack, oh, followed by yeah. bypass surgery. And um, Bishop Holly said, I would like for you to interview at Trinity in Midland. And so I knew about the congregation and what a, a dynamic and resourceful place it was. So I went and interviewed and um, there were a, mem- a number of people on the call committee, which was very high powered in terms of some of the folks that were there mm-hmm. who didn't think they should call me because I was coming off a heart attack and it had been six years before since I'd been in a congregation because I had been assistant to the bishop. Ron Johnson, bless his heart, stuck by me and said, no, I think this is the guy we ought to call. <laughs> you know, you know that, it, it, that uh, they did. And but it was like those first six months, I, I wondered myself if I could do it mm-hmm. in such a place physically, you know, a heart attack emotionally. But I remember going home after a wedding that Bernie Fellbaum and I did together and feeling really good about it. And he was very supportive. Uh, there were a lot of people that said, no, to me, don't go work with Bernie. He just, he'll just walk over you, blah, blah, blah. And other people told Bernie, when he gets here, you got to shut up and get out of the way. <laughs> so anyhow, we did that wedding and we got along great. I remember walking home with Sandy and saying, you know, I'm in the right place. I can do this. And it turned out to be 20 years of wonderful ministry with, uh, you know, so many grand people. And we accomplished a great deal in many ways. So those are the two defining moments to believe in myself, to understand that I wasn't going to be able to help everybody in every situation or do anything about what was going on. So those are two defining moments, I think, for me. Well, I'm super glad that you just, that you came to Trinity, for sure. <laughs> well, we, we have always been, we still have great friends there. And um, what what is kind of sad is that so many of that old guard are either in assisted living, nursing care, or have gone to glory. And so, you know, people like Ron and Joanne Johnson and, and others. Uh, so that's one of the harsh realities of having loved people for 20 years, and now they are mm-hmm. they are going on. So one of my favorite memories of hanging out with you is Christmas Eve when we would go to the Praskow's house late in the night, yeah. you know, right after the service. And we would party till like one or two in the morning. Yes. <laughs> that was always. I remember those too. I, I, every Christmas Eve think about that and think huh. about how much I miss those times because it was just so fun. So part of your ministry uh, experience has been serving as a pastor in suburban areas small rural communities, large cities, and you said as the assistant to the bishop. So all of these are very different communities. Uh, What was the common thread you saw, though, that ran through them all? In every one of them, and I think this is probably true for any pastor who reflects on this, but in all of those places, there were at least one, many times a few, very grace-filled, faithful people who were not encumbered by the politics or the budgets or the 
big decisions. They were always just there, supportive, and and just let things happen. And I've often thought of some of those people by name, and I did it again when I did this because they were so impactful and supportive and uh, a reminder that the, the saints come in all sizes, shapes, and they reside in every place, every congregation. Mm. What made you think that they were able to look past the politics and just be those graceful people? Because they didn't allow themselves to get brought down by a lot of that stuff that goes on in congregations. Mm. You know, you've been to congregational meetings and people argue about crazy stuff and, and uh, budgets and big decisions about shall we build or should. They just weren't affected by that. They just trusted that God's going to do the right thing and the Holy Spirit's going to work in these people and all will be well. Mm. Well, that's good to hear, right? <laughs> oh, you bet. <laughs> you bet. So what have you learned the most about Jesus in your ministry throughout the years? That was a that was a tough question when you when I read that. I think for me, to be totally honest, Jesus remains both mysteriously present and mysteriously absent. Oh, say more about well, that. <laughs> well, there are some days I just don't feel him. I don't sense him hanging out, you know, being with me uh, or being in a particular situation. At other times, yeah, it's pretty obvious. I remember uh, when we moved to Indiana a little over four years ago now, I was still pretty active. I'd done interims and supplying, and I wondered what was going to be next, you know, here in this new place. Didn't know the bishop, didn't, you know, didn't know congregations, didn't know what was there. And so I prayed about it. And I asked, uh, I asked God to show me what was next. And it was almost instantaneous that I got a call from a congreg- this urban congregation that is now dying. There's only like five, six, seven people who come to worship anymore saying, will you come and do Sunday supply for us? And it just turned out to be ideal. So that'll be four years this November that I've been going there. And it's racially diverse, uh, even with six people, it's racially diverse. And there's a transgender person there. And uh, it it just fit the bill for me because I didn't want to go to a place where I had to go to council meetings, where I had to be involved in decisions and all the minutia of church life. Just show up on Sunday, preach, administer the sacraments, have lunch with them and leave. So it was perfect. So that's that's one time where I felt Jesus really present with me with the Holy Spirit. And but there are other times when I wonder, where in the heck are you? You know? And I think I sense that in other people too, the, the mystery of his absence sometimes. And even like in the old testament, Elijah and some of the others, God, where are you? You know, I think I just want to curl up and die. So the other thing about Jesus is I think um his authenticity. I mean, he's, he, he is who he said he was. And uh, that's really hard to find in some of today's leaders, both political and even in the church. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're very authentic too much of the time. Mm. So I think his authenticity and his mysterious presence, absence. And do you feel that a lot too with what's been happening this these last two years? Yeah, for sure. We have a country that is divided <laughs> so much around mm-hmm. issues related to politics and religion. So what is it that you want people to know based on your pastoral experience? To sum it up in two words, grace wins. 
I have a friend who has, who like hands out stickers that says grace wins all the time. Well, you know, uh, I think it's Rob Bell wrote a book, love wins. Mm -hmm. And, and so I just kind of borrowed that, but grace wins. And I, and I keep going back to that. And I think Luther and so many others, uh, a reformation kind of faith have taught us that. And St. Paul in his writings, that grace is the foundation and basis for all that we, we are, that we want to be. And, I have a very good friend who, pastor who's in his late 80s now. He said to me one time, I will trust grace till the day they put me in the ground. Mm. And in that sense, grace wins. That's, it's, it's all about that. And, and to put that in the context of what's going on in the upheaval today, politically, in the church, um, pandemically, um, if, we can, if we can hold on to that, theological truth that grace wins um we'll be all right no matter what comes what does that look like for you though if if people are listening to us and be like well what does that even mean grace well to me it means to me it means that i don't have to get caught up in all the chaos it means that i can trust that god is is with us during these times that god does understand what we're going through and that in the end that grace, that unmerited favor will prevail for us. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have trouble. Doesn't mean that bad things aren't still going to happen. But even after the bad things, even after the trouble, grace will win. That's great. Okay, so I'm curious also with the grace wins. Like, And, you know, you mentioned the common thread with people is when they are gracious, so how do you think we as a community can get to these, to get to that state of grace or can recognize it? I think we have to learn and work hard at being forgiving, mm. of loving unconditionally. I saw a thing, maybe I don't know how I can say it, but uh, your love for God is only as deep as your love for the person you like the least. Mm. Maybe maybe you've seen that on Facebook. It's been all over there. Mm. But there's a lot of truth to that because I've got, you know, there's some people I have to say, you know, like I mentioned those, the political upheaval people and that I don't feel very good about. But I have to realize that God loves them just as much as God loves me. And so until we can reach some common ground in understanding this unconditional love of God, no matter what, is really important. And I don't know if you know, but I have an ongoing relationship with uh, Cody, who's in, li- in prison, serving life without parole. He he was convicted of murdering his live-in girlfriend. They were involved in some drug activity and so forth. And I didn't know him, but his grandparents were very active members. Mm-hmm. And so I started going to the jail to see him and from jail to three different prisons. And I still go to prison to see him, trying to work out a first visit since COVID in early November. But when I got involved, my point is that there were a lot of my friends and some well-meaning Christian people who said, why are you wasting your time on him? Mm. You know, like his life wasn't worth my time. And my my answer was, well, I, I think God loves him just as much as he loves me and you. And I get the kind of stink eye look back, you know, how can God love Cody? And I said, well, I believe he does. 
And uh, many of those people changed their mind and got on board. I have a, a list of uh, Cody's friends to whom I send updates and ask for their help in contributing money to his commissary account because he has to buy his own socks, his own shoes, his own underwear, his own toothpaste, his own toothbrush, any of that kind of stuff is not provided. So some of those folks have been very gracious in sending money to me, which I then deposit. So that's been a another um, very important aspect of my of my ministry life of getting involved with this person who's never going to get out and who some days claim to be an atheist, other days say, well, I'm not so sure. So he and I have had some wonderful dialogue, back and forth, debate, and I can be very upfront with him and say, you're, you know, I just don't believe that. And, uh, and he'll tell me, well, I don't believe what you're telling me either. But we have both said to each other, I love you and I respect you. And to me, that's worth its weight in gold, that I can still have that relationship. And that's what I meant earlier about being able to stay connected and walk along with, even though the journey is weird and hard and no good outcome. I think that's one of the reasons why I respect you so much is because that's clear to me, has always been clear to me. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I told myself I wouldn't cry. (laughs) Don't. It's all right. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe I'm crying. Uh, Just who you are in your ministry. I have always have seen the way that you treat people with respect. Try to. That you can completely disagree with them on all levels, but yet you still try to see the good. or the humanness right like i'm kind of um getting away from like the word good because for me it's relative right but it's about kind of the story of humanity and humanness you know and that we all do things we don't necessarily um we make bad choices sometimes sure do and from my understanding of relationship, it's because we're trying to fill a void or we're trying to reclaim something that we might not have been given um, that we needed, right? Yes. And so I see the humanness. Is that the word? Is that how it is? The humanity. Humanity. I'm like, humanness, this isn't right. <laughs> Hello. The humanity in people and that I feel like that's what Jesus ministered to, right? Is the humanity of people. And I feel like you have always seen the humanity of people and cared for them in those spaces. Well, I've tried to judgment. I have tried to model that behavior from New Testament discipleship. And I also point out to people who said that to me about Cody, I said, get your Bible out and look up Hebrews 13, verse 3, which says, remember those who are in prison as if you were with them. And then come back and talk to me about why I'm doing this. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it doesn't diminish the hurt, I think, too, that his family or the young woman's family has felt, you know, and 
Oh, I understand their anger and their hurt, and um, I have no contact with them. And, you know, I, I hope they have somebody in their circle to support them and help them go through what they're going through, the grief and the, the anger. And I went to the trial every day, and they sat on one side, Cody's family sat on the other. You talk about an emotional, uh, you know, tension, just it was just horrible. Yeah. And speaking of horrible, I think our whole incarceration system in this country is horrible. And uh, I don't know what we can do about it. I don't have any answer. But the way we treat those people um, is just beyond human, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I didn't mean to get off on that prison, but it does speak to um, how I get involved with people and how I've gotten involved with people over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things, right, that I, I, I said in our intro is that you live the gospel out even when you're criticized for it. Even when what? Even when you're criticized. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing I wrote down. <laughs> At this point in my life, um, the criticism means even less. And if somebody wants to say to me, well, I'm going to leave your church because of the sexuality decision of the ELCA or some other decision that's that's made, I just I just want to say, have a nice life. Go find a place where you're comfortable. I'm not going to beg people to stay anymore. You know, I think I probably did that along the way for selfish reasons and for budget reasons. You know, if somebody's given fifty thousand a year to the church and they threaten to leave, I think, oh no, you can't do that. So maybe a uh, mollify your stance or try to please them or whatever. Not anymore. I'm, I'm over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I feel like there's no use fighting it. Right. No, like, no. So. And, and, and I think um, that other question you had about the church. Oh, number five, what does the church do well? And so forth. When you said church there, I read into that ELCA because I can't speak for the whole yeah, Church. all the churches. So, <laughs> church is like a pizza, you know, there's a slice for everybody and uh, that makes it difficult. But the ELCA, I think, is coming around to, to saying, we believe this and we're going to stick by this. And if that doesn't fit who you are, where you are, find some place that does, because we're not going to we're not going to back down. We're going to say what we believe and believe what we say. And that's who we are. And I'm glad to be a part of this church. Yeah. What are you liking that the ELCA is doing then? Well, I think our stance on um, on sexuality, our stance on um, gender justice, our stance on uh, the environment, I think they're all good starting places for people to talk in congregational settings, small groups. And I don't think you find those kind of statements to that speak the way those do in a lot of other uh church setting. So I'm glad that we are who we are in that way. Mm-hmm. And I saw some of that when I was on the ELCA church council. I was on the council when that development of the of the uh, human sexuality statement was happening. Oh. And I remember that was adopted in 09, but I remember preaching to the council, which was very intimidating because you got uh, 35, 40 people who come from across this, this church and nine bishops along with the presiding bishop and the secretary and the treasurer of the church in the chapel. 
and I preached a sermon about them. And mm. it, it, it was about those on the outside, those on the fringes, those on the margins, and how this statement needs to uh, address that. And, and I felt that it was and did. And it went on from there and was passed and then sent on to the churches for you know, approval, and it passed. And that's when a number of people decide they could no longer be in the ELCA. Right. That little rural church, my first call, they left, which is sad. But here's another thing about leadership. They left not because uh, everybody or a majority in the congregation posed the statement, but because they had a pastor without a spine and a loud layperson led them out of the church. Mm. And so, you know, we talk about leaders and being able to stand up for biblical and theological truth is extremely important today. And I, I guess uh, when I see that Trinity Seminary in Columbus only has 12 people. Only 12, really? Yeah, who are in the track for ordination. Wow. You know, I worry about that. I worry about the church. But again, grace will prevail. God will, you know, show us the way. What do you but my think? class had 40-some. Yeah. But do you think that church is, I mean, the aspect of uh, liturgy and worship, do you feel like that's needing to change or is going to change? Well, we've seen change in the last you know, I remember in 1992 when we introduced the contemporary service at Trinity. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a major change for that very traditional, classically oriented congregation. And so I think liturgy um, will continue to evolve. I think there is somewhat of a trend. I can't back this up with any statistics that says that the old traditional way is becoming popular again especially in in the lives of younger younger people they don't all want a band up front you know they right. don't all they they appreciate the uh, but again those are probably young people that grew up with the tradition maybe then left went away to school and blah 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 came back but now maybe are married and coming back to church and and uh, finding that they get comfort and um, grounding again in that old traditional, Liturgy that the church that I'm doing here in urban Indianapolis is very. Do you know James Capers? No. Well, he's a black musician, clergy back in the 80s, 90s. He wrote some fantastic liturgy, and we use that. And it's foot stomping, hand clapping, you know, upbeat. It's not, this is the feast. It's (laughs) a very upbeat thing. And so, again, context matters. And if we want to reach African-American, Hispanic people, then our liturgies need to reflect that. That's the truth. So one thing I wanted to talk about is that you have been married for 53 years. Yes. Now with Sandy. And I am curious, what was the main ingredient for your marriage that got you here today? Well, beyond love, you mean? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was assuming that was a part of it. Yeah, that's, the base. that's the base. That's how it all started. Well, I thought a lot about that, too, and have been thinking about it when I reflect on 53 years. And so many of our friends are no longer able to say that either divorce or death has intervened. And mm-hmm. but, but I think for us, 
we allowed each other to be who we are. Mm. She allowed me to be a pastor who devoted way too much time to the call, sometimes to the neglect of family, and I confess that. And I allowed her to be and do uh, who she was and what she likes to do. And that's even obvious today as all I do is take my daily walks and write my Just Wondering column and prepare sermons. And she went back to work part-time and plays golf two or three times a week and does the things that she wants to do in her life. But I think that's kind of reflective of the way it's always been uh, for us. Plus, we, we, we've, been, we've uh, ridden out the rough times um, in, in our family, uh, forgiving, um, staying together when, when it was tough and could have been easy to go the other way. Mm-hmm. The other thing, Kara, that I think I've learned about that is when to bite my tongue and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> really, there are times really? when you just need to be quiet. Yeah. And, and I don't mean give up your self-differentiation or anything like that. I just mean sometimes you need to be quiet and allow things to happen, to be said, and then move on. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's... I, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that it's key, right? The, I love that you just said that you guys allowed yourself to be who you are, right? Because I think sometimes that gets lost. Or yeah. I also feel like we expect... Um, the person to fulfill all of our needs, which is not well, possible. From afar, I've watched you do that. Do what? Be- become <laughs> the person, evolve and become the person you are today. That's not who you were 20 years ago. No, I have definitely right? become a different person. <laughs> yeah, you have. And yeah. you've, you've been able to do that. So, yeah. That's what has to happen. Yeah, that's true. I just always remember um, going to weddings with whenever you were there. And <laughs> I read that. I, I couldn't believe you remembered something like that. Oh, my that. gosh. You're, Sandy is just, she's a rock star on the dance floor. <laughs> I'm like, this lady's amazing. <laughs> well, we've slowed down a little bit nowadays. But uh, <laughs> but she would cut a rug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that wedding I was in Saginaw and we took that picture oh, of yeah. you? Who was the other person? Do you remember? You mean the, that's now a poster? <laughs> yeah, that one. It was It was my friend. I think my friend Chiwe took the picture of you, me, and Erica. Oh, it was Erica. Yeah. And it was yeah, like yeah, you yeah. were healing us. <laughs> yeah, I had my arms out and there's this. And then the flash thing. of light. <laughs> I hope I have that somewhere. That was that. I know. I made it into a poster and put it on your door. (laughs) (laughs) Never forget that one. The other fun thing we used to do that we still do is we call each other by other names. So I should have introduced you by like Larry. (laughs) Yeah, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so weird. It was all because you called me by accident. You called me a different name, right? I called you Mary, I think. No, I think it wasn't Mary. Yeah, I don't remember when we when I went to get on the bus to go on a youth trip, and I was like, "What are you doing calling me that name?" <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> I had a poke fun. So one of the questions that I always ask is, uh, "What story are you reframing today?" Yeah, uh, I wrote down mine. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think of where I was, who I was in 1970, or even before, and the evolution that has taken place and continues to take place within the context of all that's going on in the world and in the church and, you know, and all that. And I think if you don't do that, you're going to be lost and mired down. And But something you don't know about me, but I talk about evolving is if in consideration, for example, uh, race today. I grew up in a town of 10,000 people that is now being called, in fact, there's a book about it, a sundown town mm. in which there was a written or unwritten law that no person of color was permitted to stay in the city limits overnight. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's the town I grew up in. So consequently, I had no contact with an African-American or Hispanic person except in athletics in high school. There were no people of color in my town. Wow. And um so when I got to Capitol, there was a guy on my floor, you know, an African-American basketball player. But I think growing up with that mindset that not even realizing there are other people out there, except, you know, you didn't even see those folks on TV back then or in commercials like we do now. So the whole evolution of, of, uh, of my understanding of race and that there are people out there who are much different than I, and they bring to the world different things than I bring. That evolution continues as uh, like being at the congregation here in Indianapolis, where sometimes um, the piano player and I are the only white people there. Mm. You know, that, that's really different and it's wonderful. And um, they are very accepting and uh, they build themselves as a multicultural congregation, even though it's down to five people. So that's been fun for me to see that, to be a part of that, and to realize that I have moved on in that regard from where I started in my hometown. And the other, I think, is with the role of women in the church. Graduating class of 40, there was an older woman, but she was just there for a master's degree. She knew she couldn't be ordained, and, and she was older. And so there was no, no context for a woman being ordained and being in ministry. When I was in my second call in the mid-70s, there was uh, a woman, I can't remember her name now, who was assigned to the Michigan District, and Bishop Wiedelman was looking for a place for her to go. And he actually called and talked to me about that happening in Holland, Ohio. And I was very open to it, and I think the congregation could have, would have been, but for I don't remember the reason why it didn't materialize into an interview and, and go any further. There again, to begin thinking about, from my own perspective, having a woman colleague in the pastoral office. And now, you know, I've had, we had women assist associates at Trinity, and it, it's nothing in terms of my sensitivity. But I know when I was assistant to the bishop and would go to call committees, that would have been in the 80s, 80, 83 to 89, there were call committees that just said to me, don't you bring us any women names on your call list. Wow. I remember one. I remember one little church in, in Michigan. <clears throat> but we, we had the call meeting and I said, I'll be back the next meeting and I'll have some names for you to consider with biographies and, you know, resumes and all that stuff. Packed up my stuff and this old farmer very gruffly said, Pastor, when I see that list, there better not be a woman on it. Mm. I said, oh, we'll see. So I put a woman on it intentionally, a very 
uh, talented, ready to go. And, you know, she got the call and they became good friends. Oh, really? Yeah. Look at you. Look at you breaking those walls down. (laughs) And she and I are often reflected on that afterwards because she had to break the wall down too. That had to been intimidating, I would think, for her. But she was good. She was up to it. I knew she was. And I think she still serves at a big church in Detroit today. So... But, you know, that evolution of of challenging the system at the time and knowing that that's the way the church was headed and it needed to. And uh, so that's a part of the evolution that I felt and felt a part of back in the day. Mm-hmm. And at Trinity, when we were calling after Terry left, I told Bishop, I said, we've got to call a woman to Trinity. I don't want another man on the staff. And that that was no big deal because Trinity had had a woman intern at least one. So that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a novelty thing anymore. And uh, that's how we got Denise Mm -hmm. first through. And And then she also was very pivotal for me to see a woman up there, you know. Sure. And then um, right when when I left, we had Nancy who came. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. And we had. some women directors of um, youth and music. So it became a part of the culture at Trinity. And I think it is, well, it still is to this day. Yeah. So that evolution for me was wonderful and um, it needed to happen and it did. And I'm kind of proud of it. Yeah, you should be right. I feel Uh like one of the things that sticks out for me the most too is, um, or I had on one of my other podcasts, my friend Sarah talked about how in terms of race that we have, we have in our, in our, you know, segregation have not fully experienced the joy we have. We have lost joy that we could have experienced if we have integrated more with other cultures, right? Like if, if white people weren't so, (laughs) you know, uh, weren't as, um, practice segregation as much. She's like, we miss out. We miss out on the beauty. And sure. I think she's, I think that's correct. It's 100% correct. So, but so much of racism is still under the first layer. It's like this big name coach that got fired or yeah. yesterday, you know, those emails were, were done recently, you know, and it's yeah. like outwardly this guy on television, great coach, great, TV personality, but underneath that, there was this thread of uh, racism and misogyny and all the homophobia, and that's there with so many people still today. So many, so right. many. Well, I think so much of us, I think, need to change and 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 learn how to be vulnerable and learn how to. I think there's so much for me. I think about how so much of us live into an element of fear and have been taught how to fear instead of learning how to wonder, like, that's why I love, you know, your little, (laughs) your writings of just wonderings and different things like that, because I feel so many of us need to be given permission to wonder. And part of that. Do you still get it? uh, I don't get it, but I used to get it. I don't remember why, but I can put you back on the list if you want to be on it. I would like that. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? Like we, I just feel like we need to have permission to wonder and to recognize that we all have story. I mean, we're part of the same story and we need to embrace that. And then we also have to realize that we don't have to have all the answers. That's what I mean. Yeah. Because of the fact that we feel like we have to know everything, Well, we're not going to, for goodness sakes. Right. 
or accept okay. everything that comes at us from somebody else. Right. We can wonder about it, question mm-hmm. it, doubt it, affirm it, but that's all a part of the, the journey that we need to have with each other. Yeah, that's true. Do you remember the night I walked in on you at the library at Capitol? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> with my friend. I don't know how I knew you were up there, but somebody said, yeah, she's probably in the library. So I I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, sauntered up there and there you were studying away. Yeah. See, one of the things is you were you were the person who was trying to get me to go to Capitol. It happened. Then you there? I was there for two years because then okay. I transferred to go dance at a different school. But then you also were like, so I let me know when you're going to go to seminary. <laughs> And I was like, stop being annoying. <laughs> right. I did that with a few people. I know. And then it happened. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I know. He's right again. <laughs> well, that's one of the that's one of the other things that I wrote down. Um, I think there are nine or ten people like you who went on for some form of theological education from Trinity. And I that just you, that you sought out. Or that you knew. Yeah, and encouraged and, Mm -hmm. you know, then the congregation nurtured with money and prayers and all that. But I take a great deal of righteous pride, I hope, in the fact that so many were influenced while we were there to to take the next step. So you were one of those. Yeah. Well, you know, you had a way about you where, I mean, that's what I mean. My experience for me at Trinity was... I feel like you and Denise have create this place of nurture where, you know, as a youth, I felt 100% cared for. I felt like I could come as I was, Yeah. Uh, you know, and I feel like you all were very in tune to what was happening in our lives and knew when we needed that extra support and uh, offered that, you know, in a number of different ways. Well, I'm glad it came across. Yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am very proud of you, Kara, and what you have not accomplished isn't the right word, but what you've become and the work you're doing now is uh, phenomenal, in my opinion, and I'm grateful to say I know you. Oh, thank you. And I'll be like, he helped raise me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in some ways, maybe, right? You did. You did. (laughs) You're a part of the story. And baptized your youngin. You did. You baptized. You married me. I remember that day at St. Peter Battle Creek. Yeah, I know. That was special. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure and an honor. And I can say my first podcast was with my... One and only. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you, Kara, for the invitation and uh, for the conversation and the way that we've reconnected. 